This episode is brought to you by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook of your choice and support this show by signing up for a free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash best. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Robert Reich, The Real News Network, The David Pakman Show, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Radio Dispatch, Activism from MoveOn.org, and Moyers and Company. Republicans in Congress are eager to work with the Obama administration to fast-track the passage of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. If you haven't heard much about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that's part of the problem right there. It would be the largest trade deal in history, involving countries stretching from Chile to Japan, representing 792 million people and accounting for 40% of the world economy. Yet it's been devised in secret. Lobbyists from America's biggest corporations and Wall Street's biggest banks have been involved, but not the American public. The pharmaceutical industry, for example, they get stronger patents, delaying cheaper generic versions of drugs. Big corporations and Wall Street get an international tribunal of private attorneys outside any nation's legal system that can order compensation for any lost profits found to result from a nation's regulations. That means even U.S.-based corporations could challenge any U.S. government regulation they claim unfairly diminishes their profits. Say, laws that protect American consumers from unsafe products or unhealthy foods, that protect workers, block toxic emissions, or prevent another taxpayer-funded bailout of Wall Street. The Obama administration says the trade deal will boost U.S. exports, but the deal will also allow American corporations to outsource even more jobs abroad. In other words, it's a Trojan horse in a global race to the bottom, giving big corporations from Wall Street banks a way to eliminate laws and regulations that get in the way of their profits. Right now, they're trying to get something called fast-track authority, so this massive giveaway can pass without any public review or power to amend. So we have to say loud and clear, no to fast-track and no to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. WikiLeaks recently released documents which shed light on the status of ongoing TPP negotiations. The revelations demonstrate deep disagreement between the United States and negotiating parties on the issues of intellectual property, agricultural subsidies, and financial services. Joining us in studio to discuss the TPP is Kevin Zeese. Good to see you, you, Kevin. Just so our audience know, Kevin is the co-director of It's Our Economy, an organization that advocates for democratizing the economy. He's also an organizer with popularresistance.org. Thanks for being with us. So, Kevin, just off the bat, can you just give us a sense of what the latest revelations actually reveal? Well, they revealed reality, uh, and the reality is the opposite of what the U.S. Trade Representative says, which is not uncommon. The most recent revelations came out of the Salt Lake City meetings, which were about two weeks ago. And the revelations basically showed that there was great divisions between the United States and basically every other country. We were out there alone, 
pushing for the most extreme pro-transnational corporate power positions and the countries that were resisting. And the memo leaks said basically they didn't see how there'd be an agreement reached. Then after those leaks came out, there was another round of meetings in Singapore. And in Singapore, basically things didn't happen. They, 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 they had planned, they announced that they were going to finish their negotiations in Singapore, wrap up the agreement, uh, and in fact it didn't happen. And now they're trying to plan for more negotiations in 2014, still hoping to make this happen, which we would like to see it actually not happen. What's interesting is when, they, when the negotiations in Singapore failed, the initial statements by the uh, U.S. trade rep were to blame WikiLeaks, that they caused dissension by letting out the facts. When in fact what WikiLeaks' documents showed, both leaks, that was the second leak I just described, there was one earlier about in, in intellectual property, both documents showed that the United States is basically being obstinate, it's out in left field while everyone else is in center field, uh, it's refusing to negotiate, and it's trying to bully countries and really do unethical things. And so countries are resisting, and they're saying, no, we're not going to do it. And so it's falling apart, and they blame WikiLeaks rather than themselves. Yeah, and they're, they're still, like, uh, believing that they're not in left field and still <laughs> saying that they're in center field. Um, the U.S. Trade Representative has described the TPP as, quote, an agreement among like-minded countries. Uh, that was in an article that was published today on, um, in the Washington Post. Can you describe what the U.S. Trade Representative is actually hoping to achieve with these negotiations, and which domestic interests is he Survey. Well, uh, it's not like-minded countries. In fact, the economies are very different uh, between the United States and, say, Vietnam or Chile or Peru. Uh, you know, one of, one of the big issues is the uh, uh, you know state-supported enterprises. Uh, you know, and for example, Japan and Australia have a single-payer healthcare system. We don't. We have a, a, a market insurance-based for-profit system, a commodity system. Uh, these countries instead have a system that's it's a public good health care, not a profit center. So we have a totally different approach. And you can see that in negotiations. When you asked who are they trying to benefit, well, one of the big areas of conflict is the pharmaceutical issue. And uh, the United States is really trying to make it very hard for pharmaceutical profits to go down. They're trying to prop them up with all sorts of protections, uh, you know, patent protections, making it hard for generic drugs to come to the market. They're making it so that uh, long patents first, that can be evergreened. If you change it slightly, you can get a whole other patent. And then if a generic wants to come on the market, they can't use the research that was used to make the, dr the drugs proven safe and effective. They have to do it all over again. So it's like totally protecting, protecting these big pharmaceutical companies. And it's not just pharmaceuticals. They're talking about medical procedures, med medical procedures. That's never been patented before. Medical devices, they're trying to allow patents on animals, they're trying to allow patents on you know, anything they can patent in order to commodify it and make profits for corporations. That's what the United States is trying to do, even if it's a, that's illegal currently in many of these, these countries. So as, as opposed to being like-minded countries, what this agreement really is is an agreement between uh, uh, countries that are very different, with the United States being the most pro-corporate, the Obama administration putting forward the most pro-corporate agenda, trying to create laws that protect corporations in many, many ways. And we know that's happening, of course, because for the last four years that's been negotiated in secret, rather than Congress which is constitutionally responsible for negotiating trade under the Commerce Clause. Rather than Congress negotiating it, you have uh, 600 uh, corporations uh, who have been appointed by the uh, U.S. Trade Representative to be advisors. They see it live on their, on their computer screen, while it's a secret to everybody else. They see it live and are suggesting add this paragraph, take out that clause, add this section, take out that section for four years 
we've had these corporate lawyers trying to write this agreement. So it's a very pro-corporate agreement. This is basically uh, a gift to the transnational corporations. It's bad for U.S. entrepreneurs. It's bad for the Internet. It's bad for food safety. It's bad for, you know, uh, almost everything except for the profits of transnational corporations. It's the opposite of what we need. Trade could be designed to put people and planet before profits. But this one instead, it's all about profits, just for a select few, the biggest businesses in the world. Let's turn the corner a little bit, Kevin, and you talk about how trade could benefit, you know, the majority. People. Well, we can design trade that way. That's what's so sad about it. You know, we've taken this a very secretive approach. We don't have to do that. We can be actually have an open and transparent approach. Here's what we should be doing. We should be setting a new framework. The framework should be a fair trade framework as opposed to a rigged trade framework. Right now it's rigged for the corporations. We want a fair trade framework. Second, we need a process that's open and transparent and participatory so that civil society can join in the discussions and talk about what they need, what the, what the people need, what the planet needs, as opposed to what these corporate profiteers need. Uh, and we've done the opposite. We've taken a secret approach rather than a transparent approach. And then we should set some goals. The goal should be, you know, protect the planet, provide for the necessities of the people. Those should be the goals of trade, to really create betterment for everybody. Instead, what we have is an agreement where they create a bigger wealth divide. Uh, it's a wealth divide that uh, uh, you know, will ensure that the top 5% get wealthier, but the bottom 90% of Americans, according to research by the Center for Economic and Policy Research, according to their research, the bottom 90% will get poorer, while the top 5% gets richer. That's the opposite of what we need. Just today, in fact, research came out showing the United States is the most unequal country in the world as far as, or, as developed nations goes. We are in the class of the undeveloped nations, the most corrupt nations as far as equality of, uh, of, of wealth goes. And so we're the most unequal in the world. And now President Obama is pushing an agreement that will make it even more unequal. How much do you think public awareness, the growing public awareness about the TPP, um, <laughs> and, and, and some could argue even opposition, is, is really due to the WikiLeaks revelation and, the, and, and basically they're, gonna, they're being challenged even further because there's this public op opposition? Well, there's a, both public opposition and there's opposition by negotiating countries. So there's opposition coming from a lot of directions. There's also opposition coming from Congress. Um, and there's no doubt, as the former U.S. Trade Representative Ron Kirk, who now is a lobbyist for transnational corporations, he left in January, went to become a lobbyist for the big business interests. He was asked by the media, why do you keep this so secret? And the answer was, because the more people know, the less popular it will be, it will become impossible to pass. And so their, their goal is secrecy. They want no one to discuss this and no one to know about it. So every leak helps. Now, there were leaks before WikiLeaks. There were leaks a year ago, a year and a half ago, uh, that started to come out. We started to get some information. And all the news is bad. And what's good about the WikiLeaks leaks is that it's more recent. And so the negotiations are further along, so we're getting more information. There are some very important chapters that, if they're leaked, will create such opposition that there's no way this will pass. For example, the, the rights of corporations to sue governments in these rigged trade tribunals. I call them rigged because the, the, the judges will be three judges all on leave from their corporate job, becoming judges, voting for the corporation, and then going back to their corporate job. And what they can sue for is not just you know, their losses, of, of, uh, you know, but they can sue for expected profits. But they're expected profits. So if you're like want a hydro frack in, frack in Vietnam and you've uh, started to make plans for that and you have massive profits from that coming, you hope, and the Vietnam passes a law saying no to hydro fracking, they can sue Vietnam in this rigged court, and a rigged trade tribunal, and get massive damages 
of just fantasy profits. And so it's a really, uh, you know, if, if that gets leaked, where that's ended up, where how, how far that's progressed, that will create incredible opposition. Because when people know, that the, and there's no appeal from those tribunals. You can't go to a real court. You're stuck with that result. And so the more people know about this agreement, the more it's going to become unpopular and the more opposition is growing. We're seeing a movement of movements developing. We're seeing people from labor, people from environmental activism, people from consumer activism, people from uh, uh, Internet activism, food, GMOs. They're all starting to come together and starting to say no to the TPP. We're seeing more and more countries standing up. Uh, more countries like Peru are calling for make the, uh, share, the, share the contents with their people so people know what's going on. So there's a real growing opposition to this. I think it's a, a terrible mistake by the Obama administration. Uh, maybe not a mistake in his mind because he's maybe trying to help his contributors, but it's a mistake for the planet and for the people. We really hope the TPK gets defeated. I'm afraid that I'm losing all control. Let's talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. As we talked about for months now, President Obama has been pushing for the passage of TPP, and he has most recently done this by talking to world leaders in China and saying, let's get this done, let's pass the Trans-Pacific Partnership. President Obama saying in Beijing at the Asia-Pacific Conference, this has the potential for being a historic agree, uh, uh, an historic agreement going on to say that we need to move forward on this. The leaders did not set a timetable for finalizing this. The leaders did not decide on what the circumstances of the negotiation around TPP will be. And Lewis, I have to tell you, when President Obama does something good, we praise him, and when he does something bad, we criticize him. This continues to be one of my biggest areas of concern with President Obama. I think that the TPP negotiations and emphasis are going in the completely wrong direction and it is bad for the average person. It's terrible for the average person. Yeah, this does not really do anything positive for the American people. It just uh, furthers corporate interests, protects uh, corporations in all sorts of ways. And I, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't like this. I don't like Obama for pushing it so hard. So as we've talked about with you, uh, with regard to intellectual property, TPP would strengthen the intellectual property rights for big transnational corporations. And what this would do is uh, give them further latitude in terms of enforcing copyright, provide further latitude in terms of enforcing patents. In the case of copyright infringement, if you uh, write, to give you a very specific and concrete example, now, if you get caught stealing music, for example, if you steal a hundred songs or something like that, uh, typically, the settlement that you make in terms of paying off your copyright violations, that settlement is not based on the retail price of each song, right? One of the things that, that there's some kind of deal that is reached. One of the provisions that is, that is expected to be part of TPP based on the leaked intellectual property chapter 
is that all of these copyright infringement cases would be settled at the retail rates of whatever was stolen. And this, just putting that in stone like that, putting that on paper in a way that removes latitude from courts, is just flat out anti-individual and pro-oligarchy, pro-corporatist. That's just one example, right, Lewis? The other examples that are really damaging come in a completely different area. Uh, and this is the environmental concerns area. And if you look at what TPP would do, again, what it's slated to do based on drafts that have been leaked, because it's all happening very secretly, it would weaken the restrictions on big transnational corporations with regard to pollution, with regard to cleaning up after themselves, etc., etc. So in the cases where the, where, where the law becomes stricter with TPP, it helps big corporations. In the cases where the law becomes more relaxed, it also helps corporations. This is good for corporations. This is bad for people. This is bad for the environment. This is just bad for almost everybody except the elites and the 1% and the big corporations. And I, I, I would love to know more about why President Obama is so eager to have this done. Yep, and he seems to be uh, trying to keep it as quiet as possible, of course. Uh, I doubt we're going to see uh, you know, a speech on it or see this uh, talked about in an interview with him. It's just uh, I understand why he wants to keep it out of the light. I would actually love to hear, it could be from President Obama or from anyone who's pushing TPP, give me a specific example of how the individual would be better off with TPP in place as proposed. So say to me, okay, here's how the average Joe Schmo would be dealt with in this scenario pre-TPP, and here's how it would be post-TPP, and here's how it would be better for individuals. I would love to even just hear one scenario like that, Lewis. I imagine that jobs would come up in that, uh, you know, in one of those questions. But uh, does that even things out? Probably not. This is one of those areas where Democrats and Republicans are very, very similar. When it comes to when you're a, a, a president of the U.S., regardless of what you campaigned on, there are certain plutocratic oligarchical realities that you can't circumvent even if you want to. And we don't know if President Obama wants to. And there is not much of a difference in these particular cases between Republicans and Democrats. On many issues, there are differences. On this particular issue, there seem not to be. Just like most podcasts, this show is sponsored by Audible, where you can get hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, radio shows, audio versions of periodicals, and more. You can get a free book of your choice by going to audiblepodcast.com slash best, which you can also find linked up on my website. I'm currently reading Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, and I highly recommend it to anyone interested in getting a new perspective on how American society got to where it is today. Audible is selling this book for almost $90, but it can be yours for free by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best. So check it out, read along with me if you like, and let me know what you think. Laurie Wallach graduated from Harvard Law School, and she started working in the litigation group, Public Citizen. And I thought there was a great opportunity for her in the emerging battle for new kinds of trade agreements that are forms of transnational governance, secretive decisions made, sidestepping our 
regulatory agencies, our legislatures, and our courts. And at that time, in the early 90s, people were not aware of this. They weren't aware of anything but the nomenclature. That is, free trade, win-win, everybody wins. You know, it's the old free trade mantra a couple centuries ago where the British sold textiles to Portugal and the Portugal vendors sold wine to the British, and they were both comparatively advantaged, and everybody won. It's quite different now, and on this program, we're going to hear from Laurie as to why it's different. First, by laying out the structure of these trade agreements and how radical they are against our constitutional and open government traditions, and then going to how they have actually affected working people and communities in this country and consumers. And then I know she wants to talk about the forthcoming Pacific Trade Agreement that President Obama is wrapping up with Asian and other nations and is going to submit to Congress. One other thing you must know about Laurie, she is obviously relentless, persistent. She's been all over the world in symposiums and action arenas, helping people oppose the rapacious impacts of these agreements. And once you get them concrete, they really are pretty mind-blowing in how cruel and vicious this organized corporate multinational greed can be using government for its own purposes. She's also well-known on Capitol Hill. I introduced her to a number of senators and representatives in the pre-fight for NAFTA and WTO. She now has great credibility on Capitol Hill, and she may have some surprise projections for us about the way the House of Representatives is going to receive the Pacific Trade Agreement, which she has described as NAFTA on steroids, if and when President Obama sends it to Congress on fast track. So take it away, Laurie. Why don't you describe the structure of these trade agreements and how they affect consumer environmental and worker rights and not just trade? Well, the first thing for everyone to know is that these trade agreements aren't mainly about trade anymore. So we've all been subject to a rather clever misbranding campaign where this concept of free trade, which most people think of as cuts in border taxes, tariffs, that's what free trade used to mean, is been used to basically slide through what is effectively a system of enforceable, global, corporate-led governance. And the way it works is that these so-called trade agreements, let's just say the World Trade Organization, the thing that replaced the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, GATT, that was a trade agreement. It only covered border taxes on things you could drop on your foot. If it wasn't an actual product, it wasn't under GATT. In comes the WTO. Everyone just is told it's a bigger, stronger GATT. But in fact, of the WTO's 17 chapters, only six of them have anything to do with trade. The other 11 chapters set up binding policies and we all have to conform all levels of our domestic policies, local, state, federal law, to these rules. So what kind of rules? Well, there's an intellectual property chapter that expanded the monopoly period of patents that the big pharmaceutical companies had in medicines. What did that mean practically? The U.S. went from a 17-year monopoly on medicines to a 20-year that means three extra years to the big pharmaceutical companies to charge anything they want for medicines. So the University of Minnesota found that that alone was a $17 billion increase in the price of medicines just for the medicines that were under patent at that time. 
So WTO, instead of being free trade, is new monopolies for big companies raising prices for consumers. Or there's another chapter that limits the kind of food safety protections that we can have in our country. And it doesn't matter if those rules apply to domestic food and imported food. There's simply a ceiling on safety. For instance, we're required to accept meat that is considered safe under some other country's standards. And by the way, some of the countries under those rules are now bringing in meat. hate to do this to those who aren't vegetarians already. Our countries have privatized their food inspection system. So you've got countries like Australia that have astronomical rates of E. coli in their chicken production who are sending their products here. Oh, and there's a whole set of limits on labeling of food. So we can't even know the country of origin of the food. Or in WTO, there's a whole chapter to deregulate the banksters. So during the 90s heyday of deregulation, those guys got their own chapter in WTO that limits a lot of the key financial regulations that we need now to make sure that the bank doesn't take our house, to make sure that we don't have another financial crisis. All of those things having nothing to do with trade under the brand of free trade. And because we've all been told free trade, it's so good, those words, such good news, free trade, who doesn't like both things? Congress, when WTO and NAFTA were under consideration, really was largely clueless, despite our best efforts, that this wasn't a trade agreement. This is like a slow-motion coup d'etat by corporations because if any country doesn't change all of its domestic laws to meet these rules, which, by the way, don't sunset, you can't change a common unless all the signatory countries agree. How many Each, are there? 160 in WTO now. Each one with the same your, vote, right? Each one with the same vote. And if you don't change your laws, you face trade sanctions. That's just the punchline of it. It's actually enforceable, unlike, unlike most global rules. You actually, you don't comply with these retrograde rules. Your country gets slapped with billions in trade sanctions that don't go away until you cave in and get rid of your consumer protection. So, Laurie, this to me sounds, not to sound conspiratorial, it sounds like corporate world government. I mean, it sounds like, if I'm hearing you correctly, these agreements are all made to bypass domestic laws and safety standards, health and safety standards. Your perspective is exactly right. And what has happened, basically is that to the extent the rules have been enforced time after time, domestic, environmental, consumer, and other laws have been rolled back. So just in the U.S., under the WTO, we've seen the dolphin safe tuna rules rolled back. So everyone knows in the tuna fish there's that little smiling dolphin label. That no longer means that flipper didn't die. The standard used to be no tuna can be sold here if it's caught with those nets that drown, the circle nets that drown dolphins. Right. No, 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 no. After, after one of these trade cases, the U.S. rolled back the standard to avoid the trade sanctions. All it means now is no one on the boat saw a flipper die. It's literally a rollback of the standard after a case to avoid the sanctions. Or Clean Air Act rules on gasoline cleanliness put into place to try and counter the epidemic of asthma in our cities, rolled back after a successful WTO case, or Endangered Species Act rules that were put into place to try and save endangered sea turtles, rolled back. And right now, the WTO is about to impose sanctions over President Obama's landmark 2009 laws on tobacco, keeping kids from smoking, 
and on a policy relating to the country of origin labeling of our meat. Those examples you gave indicate what countries challenged the U.S. in those tribunals in Geneva to get their way, starting with the tuna. Well, this is the perverse thing. Right now, as we're, uh, we're going to talk about, we're having a negotiation for a thing called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And it includes Mexico, a country that has repeatedly used the WTO to attack our domestic consumer and environmental laws. Because NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, just like that WTO, mainly not about trade, enforceable, all these corporate rules, chapters imposing retrograde policies having nothing to do with trade, that agreement, under that agreement, Mexico has also challenged our rule that requires that only trucks domiciled in Mexico that meet our driver safety, insurance, and environmental standards can come into a certain part of the U.S. And Mexico's using NAFTA, the similar tribunal system with the sanctions, to say, no, 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 you have to allow these trucks to drive any place in the U.S. And, of course, president after president, Democrat and Republican, has said, but wait, these trucks aren't safe. Sorry, $3.2 billion of trade sanctions were imposed. President Obama has allowed a pilot program to allow in those trucks. Laurie, can you explain how it overrides domestic sovereignty? I've often said that these trade agreements involve the greatest surrender of U.S. sovereignty, local, state, and national, in U.S. history. Every treaty involves some relinquishment of sovereignty so nations can get together, sign on, and pursue a common objective. But in this case, give the example of child labor which is illegal in this country, under WTO, countries using child labor, exporting products to this country. That tells me how our sovereignty is being overridden. You remember Tom Harkin tried to do something about that in the U.S. Senate. Can you explain that? You bet. So let me just first practically explain what the key provision is. Every one of these agreements has a provision that says the signatory countries, like the United States, quote, shall ensure the conformity of all domestic laws, regulations, and procedures, end quote, with the attached agreements. That's the actual WTO text. What that means is, for instance, U.S. law currently forbids the interstate movement, movement between each U.S. state, of products made by the labor of children younger than 16. That's how we have a ban in our country on child labor. The WTO has a rule that basically does not allow countries in making their domestic laws to distinguish the ways in which things are made. A physically identical product has to be treated the same regardless of the labor, environmental, or other conditions. So, for instance, that is the child labor issue. So the U.S. at a certain point realized that our interstate trade in banned child labor products, was being undermined by imports from developing countries that permitted child labor. So the U.S. government moved to actually have a new amendment to the law that said, and no products, this was what Senator Harkin wanted, no products made by child labor shall be allowed into the U.S. And immediately a variety of WTO member countries that use child labor wrote to the U.S. and said, we're so sorry. You're not allowed to do that, and if you proceed, we will take you to the WTO. That is a violation. And, by the way, that's the same theory, that's the same WTO rule 
under which we had to roll back our dolphin protections because the basic rule is unless literally there is dead dolphin in the tuna can, tuna that is caught dolphin safe cannot be distinguished from tuna that is caught killing dolphins. A shoe made by a child laborer bound to a machine and starved cannot be distinguished from a shoe made in the Blue Star OSHA safety plant of plant ownership of a co-op in Maine making a shoe. A shoe is a shoe. You cannot distinguish. And the notion that some tribunal of three unelected trade officials would be able to become judge and jury and executioner for a U.S. law that's been made to the domestic democratic process stood up in courts is enraging. Ralph, as you've said, if these rules were ever fully enforced, you would have people on the street in revolt against these trade agreements. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. The TPP is an incredibly mysterious uh, trade agreement. Uh, what information we have about it is really only available thanks to organizations like WikiLeaks, which have been has been releasing documents for the last couple of years related to it. Um, but this uh, the, the TPP is a trade agreement between twelve countries. Uh, it is the United States, Japan, Mexico, Canada, Australia, Malaysia, Chile, Singapore, Peru, New Zealand, and the tiny, tiny, tiny little nation of um, Brunei, uh, which is near Malaysia. And it's looking to break down the trade barriers. Um, it represents 40% of the world economy. So this is a big deal. Um, and, and the parallels between the TPP and CAFTA are kind of staggering when you really start looking at them. Back in 2002, when George Bush first announced uh, his intentions for pursuing CAFTA, um, Congress had granted him the ability to fast track, which basically it allows him to negotiate without having to rely on Congress and be able to push it through. Obama is pursuing the exact same thing, but with the TPP. Um, he's requested that he have the ability to fast track it. Um, in the area which which I'm most concerned about is related to the the rights of investment, uh, which is almost identical to in the TPP is almost identical to what was written in CAFTA. Um, basically, a corporation has the ability to sue any government. Um, 
when they don't agree with a, a, a policy. Um, with CAFTA, this has been this has played out in El Salvador with a mining company called Pacific Rim um, suing the Guatem or the, the El Salvadoran government over uh, uh, mining interests. Uh, El Salvador had blocked the, uh, the company from uh, their mining rights, and they took the the mining company took uh, El Salvador to this really really obscure court within the World Bank called the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes. And the case is still advancing right now, but there's a lawsuit, it's, there's a lawsuit for around $300 million related to the rights to investment. So with TPP, that, it allows companies on a larger scale to sue governments. There's, there, it usurps the, the, uh, the sovereignty of the countries involved within this trade agreement. And presumably uh, we could see another or or similar uh, pipelines created following the TPP as yes. as the one that you described that that happened yes. uh, that's happening now with CAFTA. Yes, there is that potential as the uh, the backbones of the economy. I mean, we have to look at we have to look at trade agreements as more or less breaking the social fabric. It's these are neoliberal policies. These are based in the idea that private interest has more rights than a sovereign government. And really, it's the restructuring of the social order in these countries. So we could see a massive pipeline of people from, say, Vietnam um, going to Australia or to, you know, um, the one that actually came to mind when I was thinking about this was uh, Peru. Um, potatoes are really important to Peru. Well, are we going to see the importation of Idaho-grown potatoes into Peru? There's there's a lot of questions around the TPP and what the potential is, but there is that there's definitely the potential of another pipeline being created. Wow, this is this has been uh, a very very interesting uh, conversation, and uh, and one of the you know as a as just a, a final thought, one of the other similarities is that these agreements are drafted almost entirely in secret and as you mentioned and and sometimes written explicitly by the corporate interests themselves or very much on behalf of the corporate interests and it just seems like if the only way that we can learn about these kind of agreements is through WikiLeaks it seems like that's that's just uh, a really terrifying situation yeah. Well, that's the thing. Um, there was an article over at Alternate uh, by Robert Reich, the former Labor Secretary under the Clinton administration. Um, he was he wrote about this this part of the, the of the United States corporations and their big involvement in the writing of these trade agreements. And he refers to it as being one the, as the first corporate written trade agreement. And I would argue with him, no, actually, CAFTA was. CAFTA was written entirely in secret. Um, by the time it was passed in 2005, they had um, the Central American countries had just received a translation of the, the trade agreement in Spanish. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, these these trade agreements are written entirely with Wall Street's interest in mind. It's it's actually maddening. If you go to the website of the TPP, they talk about it supporting um, U.S. you know small businesses 
and it's like, well, if you call, you know, say, um, <laughs> Citibank a small business, <laughs> or, you know, choose a company, call that a small business, okay, great, it's sure, it's, a co it's supporting a small, quote-unquote, business, but in reality, no, it's not. Most people in the United States are not even involved in the conversation. Most people in the United States don't even know what the conversation is happening. And it's 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 actually really it's infuriating and, and horrifying. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. You've reached today's activism segment. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's action, stop fast track for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It appears there is something the president and the GOP-led Congress can agree is a good idea, ceding our nation's economic autonomy to an international corporate conglomerate in a trade deal that has been repeatedly called NAFTA on steroids. As Lori Wallach reported in The Nation back when the TPP first got press almost three years ago, the agreement is essentially an assault on democracy, and as we've heard today, there hasn't been much improvement since then. The Obama administration has asked Congress to fast-track legislation to approve the trade deal. Fast-track authority accelerates the process by which a bill becomes a law by preventing amendments and only requiring a majority vote in the Senate, making it impossible to filibuster. Most of the Congressional Democratic Congress is opposed to fast track for the TPP, but there may not be enough Republican opposition to prevent it from happening without public outcry, which is going to be hard to drum up because trade deals are boring, super important and super boring. As our friend Lee Camp says, boring evil is the worst. It's terrifyingly easy to get things past a busy, struggling or apathetic public when words like trade deals and tax policy and See, right there, I, I've lost you already. The communication workers of America, however, are making it easy to care and easy to act. Their petition at moveon.org simply says, tell Congress we can't afford to outsource more jobs. You can find it at the moveon.org homepage, then just click and sign to tell your representatives you expect them to vote no on fast-track authority. The CWA is also phone banking to let legislators know they oppose thoughtlessly approving a corporate power grab that would eliminate their jobs. If you want to join them, simply dial 
888-222-2256 and enter your zip code when prompted. You will be connected to your rep staffer to whom you simply say something like, I'm a constituent and I've had enough of bad trade deals negotiated in secret like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Congress needs to read the deal and not vote to fast track it before even knowing what's in it. I urge you to vote no on fast track authority for the TPP. Simple, direct, and yes, legislators do still keep a record of calls on issues, and House members are pretty much already running again and need to listen when you call. Opposing Fast Track won't stop the TPP from eventually becoming law. It will, however, make the process public and lengthier and give less engaged citizens an opportunity to hear about the deal and weigh in. As part of the highly engaged and involved group within the citizenry, it's basically on us to run around sounding the alarm. Visit moveon.org, sign, and then share the petition. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If preventing corporations from having complete authority over U.S. economic policy matters to you, be sure to hit the share button to spread the word about stopping fast track for the TPP via social media so that others in your network can join the fight. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. If you've read the espionage novels of John Le Carre, you know that no other writer today has so brilliantly evoked the subterranean workings of government, perhaps because he himself was once a British spy. Le Carre has a name for that invisible labyrinth of power. He calls it the Deep State. And now, an American you're about to meet in this broadcast has seized on that concept to describe the forces he says are controlling our government no matter the party in power. But Mike Lofgren's no intelligence agent, although he had a top-secret security clearance. He's a numbers man, a congressional staff member for 28 years with the powerful House and Senate budget committees. Over the years, as he crunched those numbers, he realized they didn't add up. Instead, they led him to America's own deep state, where elected and unelected figures collude to protect and serve powerful vested interests. Mike Lofgren was so disgusted, he not only left Capitol Hill, he left the Republican Party and wrote this book, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. Now, at our request and exclusively for BillMoyers.com, he has written Anatomy of the Deep State. You'll want to read it as soon as we finish this conversation. Mike Lofgren, welcome. Good to be here again, Bill. This is a difficult subject to talk about. It would be easier if uh, it were a conspiracy you're describing, but that's not the case, is it? No, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Uh, this is not some cabal that was hatched in the dark of night. Uh, this is something that hides in plain sight. Uh, it's something we know about, but we can't connect the dots, or most people don't connect the dots. It's kind of a natural evolution when so much money and political control is at stake in the most powerful country in the world. 
this has evolved over time. And you call it the real power in the country. Correct. It is a hybrid of corporate America and the national security state. Everyone knows what uh, the military-industrial complex is, since Eisenhower talked about it in his farewell address. Everyone knows Wall Street and its depredations. Everyone knows how corporate America acts. They're both about the same thing. They're both about money, sucking as much money out of the country as they can, and they're about control, corporate control and political control. You said this, in your judgment, is the big story of our time. It is the big story of our time. It is, I would say, the red thread that runs through the history of the last three decades. It's how we had deregulation, financialization of the economy, the Wall Street bust, the erosion of our civil liberties, and perpetual war. You write that the secret and unaccountable deep state floats freely above the gridlock between both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue is the paradox of American government in the 21st century. Well, that's just the thing. The common narrative of the last five years, and on a superficial level, it's right, is that um, government is broken, it's dysfunctional, it's gridlocked. Well, that's true, and that is the visible government, the constitutional government we learn about in Civics 101, and it is gridlocked. But somehow Obama can go into Libya, he can assassinate U.S. citizens, he can collect all our phone records without a buy-or-leave from anyone. Um, he can even uh, bring down a jet carrying a uh, president of a sovereign country without asking anyone's permission. And no one seems to connect the two. The failure of our visible constitutional state and this other government that operates according to no constitutional rules or any constraint by the governed. You go on to say, though, that it's not just the executive branch that is the heart of this, that is just one of the several constituencies that make up what you call the, the deep state. Well, it's all the national security functions of the government. It's the Pentagon, it's Homeland Security, it's the State Department. Uh, it's also Treasury because they have a kind of symbiotic relationship with Wall Street. For one thing, they control the flow of money. Absolutely. And that's why there's such a, uh, a flow, not only of money, but of personnel between Wall Street and the Treasury Department. There's other aspects of government. There's a portion of the judiciary, a small portion of the judiciary, the so-called foreign intelligence surveillance courts. Uh, most of Congress doesn't even know how they operate. Talk a little bit more about the nexus, the connection between the national security state and Wall Street, because this is a theme that runs through your essay. Do you know that about 30 blocks north of here, there is a restaurant that will sell you a truffle for $95,000? Also in New York, uh, Christie's sold at auction a painting by Francis Bacon for $142 million. Now, a parallel situation 
with the national security state, the NSA spent $1.7 billion to build a facility in Utah that will collect one yottabyte of information. That's as much information as has ever been written in the history of the world. It costs $400 by the time the Pentagon finishes paying contractors to haul one gallon of gasoline into Afghanistan. That's a real extravagant amount of money. In both cases of the national security state and the corporate state, they are sucking money out of the economy. As our infrastructure collapses, uh, we have a tinker toy power grid that goes out every time there's inclement weather. Um, tens of millions of people are on food stamps. We incarcerate th more people than China, an authoritarian state with four times our population. Does anyone see the disparity between this extravagance for the deep state and the penury that is being forced on the rest of the country. That isn't a natural uh, evolution. Something made it happen. Talk a little bit about what you call this strange relationship between Silicon Valley and the government and how it fits into the deep state. Well, the National Security Agency could not do what it does. The CIA could not do what it does without Silicon Valley. Now, Silicon Valley, unlike the defense contractors, mostly sells to private individuals and to companies. It's not a, a big government vendor. However, its uh, services are necessary. And de facto, they have become a part of the NSA's operations. I'm sure the CEOs of some of these companies try to obscure the fact that this has mostly been voluntary for many years. You mean the surveillance? The surveillance. The gathering of information on unknowing citizens. Absolutely. For commercial purposes, though. Precisely. They've done it themselves. And they've assisted the NSA through a FISA court order for an intelligence, for an intelligence surveillance act. Um, so this has been going on for quite a while. Yet now, like uh, Inspector Raynaud, they are shocked, shocked to find out. But I think their main shock is that they're now starting to lose market share in foreign countries. These these moguls, as you call them, pass themselves also as libertarians. You oh, know they that. do. They make a big pretense about being libertarians and uh, believing in the rugged individualism and so forth. But they've been every bit as intrusive as the NSA has been in terms of collecting your data for commercial purposes rather than... Uh, so-called national security purposes, but they're in it just as heavily as the NSA is. And they somehow managed to get the intellectual property laws rigged so that you are theoretically subject to a fine of up to $500,000 for jailbreaking your phone. Which means? Which means if you don't like the carrier on your phone 
that the manufacturer dictates you shall have and you change it without authorization, um, you don't have the right to something you bought. Could this symbiotic and actual relationship between Silicon Valley and the government, reflecting the deep state, explain the indulgence Washington has shown Silicon Valley on matters of intellectual property? Absolutely. People no longer necessarily own their property that they buy if they're buying it from Silicon Valley. They simply have a kind of lease on it. If, as you write, the ideology of the deep state is not Democrat or Republican, not left or right, what is it? It's an ideology. I just don't think we've named it. It's a kind of corporatism. Um, now, the actors in this drama tend to steer clear of social issues. They pretend to be merely neutral servants of the state, giving the best advice possible on national security or financial matters. But they hold a very deep ideology of the Washington consensus at home, which is deregulation, outsourcing, uh, deindustrialization and financialization, and they believe in American exceptionalism abroad, which is boots on the ground everywhere, it's our right to meddle everywhere in, in the world, and the result of that is perpetual war. Here's your summing up, quote, as long as appropriations bills get passed on time, promotion lists get confirmed, black or secret budgets get rubber stamped, special tax subsidies for certain corporations are approved without controversy, as long as too many awkward questions are not asked, the gears of the hybrid state will mesh noiselessly. Is that the ideology? That is a government within a government uh, that operates off the visible government and operates off the taxpayers, but it doesn't seem to be constrained in a constitutional sense by uh, the government. Is there a solution to the way the system works now? I think we're starting to see uh, some discord in the ideology of the factions that make up the deep state. We're seeing Silicon Valley jump ship. They are starting to protest against the NSA. We're seeing the Tea Party uh, bailing out against the deep state. They may be uh, wrong on many economic issues, but I don't think they're necessarily wrong on this one. So the public could be going wise? I think they are. There's a much more uh, vivid debate going on in the country about surveillance ever since the revelations by Edward Snowden. Thanks to the journalist Lee Fang, we have another revelation into how the deep state enterprise works. Writing for the Republic Report, a nonpartisan nonprofit that investigates money and politics, he takes up that controversial trade deal called the Trans-Pacific Partnership that President Obama is trying to push through Congress with minimum debate and no amendments. Controversial because some of its provisions reportedly enable corporate power to trump representative government, even go around domestic courts and local laws. 
One is said to prevent governments from enacting safeguards against another bank crisis. Another, to empower corporations to sue governments for compensation if, say, environmental protections or regulations on tobacco and drugs interfered with future profits. Because of the secrecy, we don't know everything that's in the draft agreement. Senator Elizabeth Warren calls it a chance for these banks to get something done quietly out of sight that they could not accomplish in a public place with the cameras rolling and the lights on. Which brings us to two officials chosen by President Obama to lead those trade negotiations. Lee Fang reports that they received multi-million dollar bonuses as they left giant financial firms to join the government. Bank of America gave this man, Stephen Seelig, more than $9 million in bonus pay as he was nominated to become the Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. And this man, Michael Froman, got over $4 million when he left Citigroup to become the current U.S. Trade Representative. Now, both are no doubt honorable men. They are all honorable men. But when push comes to shove and the financial interests of huge corporations are on the table, we can only hope they will act as independent men, not faithful servants of the deep state. But given the secrecy, we may never know. Jay, this is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington. I just wanted to make two quick points about the Charlie Hebdo uh, episode. The, f the first is there the, the many of the governments involved were hypocrites in the protest and in the solidarity, fake solidarity, and all that. That's great. They 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 have issues that need to be addressed, and that's true. The Muslims in in many countries in the West are the leaguered minority, and that's true as well. Killing people because they say something or print something that you find offensive is terrorism, plain and simple. It doesn't matter how beleaguered you are, it doesn't matter if they're punching up or punching down. If you kill people for cartoons, you're a terrorist and there's no excuse, period. If you support it, there's no excuse. There's no but involved. There's no but this, but that. You killed people because they made a cartoon. You are not a part of 21st century society. The second point is the, the, the nuance of rights. One of the things that, that people have to remember is one of the reasons why a Bill of Rights type of, situ type of document or so forth is important is because we have a government so that we can have rights. So the Bill of Rights is kind of like, you know, it's kind of a way of saying, hey, don't touch these things because that's kind of what you're here to make sure that we have in the first place. You're here to make sure we have rights, so if you can trample on our rights, then you're defeating the purpose. You're, you're doing what the thugs would have done without a government in a state of nature. And so we have to be a little bit more nuanced when we think about this because if my employer can fire me because of some unrelated statement I made in some unrelated forum, do I have freedom of speech? If, and you know, I'm, and I'm not a radio personality or anything like that, so, so they're not hiring me to talk, but if, if my landlord can kick me out of my house and, you know, nobody will rent to me because of something I said, do I really have freedom of speech? That's why we have laws that protect things like religion, that, that where the government compels us to treat each other as equals. The government 
gives teeth to our right of free speech by protecting us from people who would hurt us for speaking. The government gives us, the government protects our rights by enforcing them, by not letting people fire us because we are the wrong religion and so forth. So I just want to make that uh, make that distinction that while the First Amendment, for instance, says they shall not infringe, you know, they shall not pass a law, the basic idea of it is the government's job is not just to protect us from it, it's to protect us from each other, it's to protect me from infringing upon your rights. Anyway, I appreciate the discussion and uh, thanks for the show. Bye. Hi, Jay. It's Kate. I wanted to call in regarding your latest episode on climate change. Absolutely fantastic episode. It's really great to hear a lot of the wins that we're seeing out of climate change. However, I heard the last clip, which was Jay O'Hara and his confrontation with Cole Bios and in court. Um, and really, he gave us all a call to action in our daily lives. And there's something that I read recently about how people love the idea of changing the world, but don't want to change themselves. And what I'm talking about here is the effect of animal agriculture on climate change. Animal agriculture's contribution to climate change is one of the largest factors with regards to greenhouse gas emissions. It's definitely something that the progressive community doesn't really talk about in, in really the way it should. It's up to 14% of global greenhouse gas emissions. The Environmental Working Group uh, chronicled a study of global meat production uh, between 1971 and 2010, during which that time the production actually tripled. They also, while the population grew at a comparatively shorter place, um, they said that by 2050, we'd be producing 1.2 trillion pounds of meat per year, and it would require more water, land, fuel, pesticides, and fertilizer, which would cause significant damage to the planet and global health. Uh, in 2014, the University of Minnesota released their own study, which looked at global uh, diet trends and the public health and climate change. They said that if we could shift our consumption of meat to just three ounces a day, significantly lower than what it is now, we could avoid 2.15 gigatons of CO2 equivalent emissions. To produce one calorie of animal protein requires 11 times as much fossil fuel input and releases 11 times as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere as one calorie from plant protein. These are just the climate change effects. There are a lot of other environmental impacts. 1.5 billion cows living on the planet right now as livestock consumes 45 billion gallons of water and 135 billion pounds of food every day. One third of a pound of hamburger can consume as much as 18,000 gallons of water. Now, this is right around the time when people who eat meat are talking about how they only eat grass-fed beef. Well, I'm sure they'd like to know that 38,600 square miles of the Amazon rainforest has been cleared to make pasture for grass-fed beef since 1996. I'm so disappointed that progressives never really talk about this when it comes to climate change. And I understand, I'm not blaming you at all because I understand that you are somewhat limited by uh, the clips that you put together. So obviously other people have to be talking about it. You know, I actually wrote into David Pakman a couple months ago asking him if he had ever considered veganism. 
And he actually just sort of laughed it off. And really, we even wouldn't consider going vegan or abstaining from animal agriculture products for even a short period of time. And I feel like while that's a disappointing reaction, I wasn't really surprised at all because Really, when progressive, <laughs> when the rubber hits the road, we can be a little, you know, milk toast about the actual changes we can make on a daily basis. I think that the animal rights and health benefits are compelling reasons enough for a vegetarian or a vegan diet. But for progressives to chastise fossil fuel companies for the damage they do and not curb their own animal agriculture consumption, to me, is as hypocritical as a pro-lifer who also supports the death penalty. I would love to know how fellow progressives who are concerned about climate change would justify eating meat. I'm sure most people would say it's either health or culture. However, the American Medical Association and the NHS in the UK describe a balanced vegan diet as optimal for health. The American Medical Association bases that off a seven-year, 70,000-person study, which says that vegans live longer. In fact, there are 17,000 studies which uh, support that data, including the China study, which is the largest nutritional study in history, and it points to a reduction of cancer on a plant-based diet. On the culture point, I would, I would ask how many of your listeners come from a conservative or a religious culture, and how many of them have made different choices. We're all still individuals, even if we're part of a culture. And that's to say nothing of the many, many cultures in the world where veganism and vegetarianism is the norm due to the high cost of meat in that in those parts of the world. Anything I've said is not top secret. You can look into it for yourself. I know that it can be hard for people to approach food objectively or our consumption habits objectively, but we have to hold ourselves to the standard of objectivity and look at the facts if we want to call ourselves progressive. Again, I would love to know how other progressives can justify voting with their dollars, something that you encourage all the time, and support such a damaging industry, knowing all of this. I think as progressives, when we find holes and inconsistencies and hypocrisies in our community, we need to be brave enough to call them out. And that's why I want people who are committed to climate change to look at their consumption habits, particularly with regards to animal agriculture, and start making some changes. If you are really concerned about our effects on climate, you can start right now to curb or completely eliminate your consumption of animal agriculture products. I would love to see that from progressives. I would love to see that much more. And I would love that to be something that we talk about with regards to our commitment to fighting climate change. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Glubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, just a couple of quick notes on these voicemails we heard. I'll start with Nathan. That was the first one. And any longtime listener of the show knows that Nathan from Vancouver calls in a fair amount. And he is a very logical guy. I, I can empathize with him in that way, I estimate that I'm like 10% autistic. I, I, I have that ability to go into that hyper-logical uh, state of mind where all you know nuance 
is swept away and I see things just exactly logically and that's how I see it. I feel like Nathan is sort of in that same realm. He's very, very logical. But as I have seen him do sometimes in the past is he will focus laser-like on the logical point he is making and he's not necessarily wrong about what he's saying at all. But that laser-like focus can sometimes blind him to sort of larger contextual issues that actually matter a lot. So here, just listen again to this one little bit he says. Killing people because they say something or print something that you find offensive is terrorism, plain and simple. It doesn't matter how beleaguered you are. It doesn't matter if they're punching up or punching down. If you kill people for cartoons, you're a terrorist and there's no excuse. Now, I highlight that part of his voicemail not because I disagree with it in any way, quite the opposite. It actually seems so obvious to me as to almost not need to be said. I mean, especially I like to imagine this show as being sort of rhetorically beyond a point like that. It's just so basic that shouldn't we all just recognize that as obviously true? But Nathan doesn't make a habit of calling in and making points that are completely obvious. You know, he calls and says things that he thinks need to be heard. And, you know, in the context of the call and you hear the urgency in his voice, it sounds like he felt like he was making a point that maybe I would disagree with or that contributors to the show who were in the Charlie Hebdo episode didn't necessarily agree with and or listeners. Who knows? But it leaves me wondering, you know, what was going through his head that made him think, like, I need to make this point. And so I have a guess, and I think it's that he is missing one of two things, if not both. So the first is the difference between explaining something and excusing it. Now, this is one of the things that I'm a huge, huge fan of. It's one of my favorite points to make, which is that explaining the actions of someone or explaining sort of the natural process by which a person or a group of people came to do what they did does not inherently excuse whatever actions those people may have taken if those actions are inexcusable, for instance, like with Charlie Hebdo example. And the other point, very much along the same lines, is recognizing the importance of understanding those motives and the context and and all those sorts of things. So, So either he conflated explaining with excusing, or he's not confusing those things. He just thinks they're unimportant and that, you know, hey, it's a black and white issue. People who, you know, murder because they're uh, offended by a cartoon aren't part of 21st century society. And that's where the conversation can end. We don't need to dissect any further than that, which I completely disagree with. I mean, basically, just because I think understanding why people do what they do is one step on the path towards fixing all the shit that's wrong in the world and you know understanding people and understanding the problems is is how we come to solutions and how we recognize the nuances because you know no one's born a terrorist they become that way somehow so if you can understand the path a person took to get to that point where they start committing inexcusable actions and crimes and murders and so on you know if you can walk that back you can hopefully do something, have some sort of influence where you prevent that pattern from repeating itself. And then secondly today, just real quick on the question of why 
we eat what we eat. Why do liberals continue to eat meat when the evidence is clear for anyone to see that it has, you know, incredibly detrimental impacts on the environment and so on? I have some thoughts about this. I've said them before on the show, and I may say them again soon, but I would like to hear from you guys first. We haven't had this discussion in a while. So if you eat meat and you just heard that voicemail and it's all laid out for you that it is detrimental to the environment, it is not better for your health, you know, she gave a couple of examples. Maybe it's culture, maybe it's, maybe you think it's for your health and so on. I think she laid out the challenge pretty well. If, if you are faced with this decision and you decide to continue eating meat, then, you know, why is that? I certainly think that the answer for most people is is actually incredibly nuanced and, and sort of confusing and not even something that people make conscious decisions about. But I will hold my uh, full opinion until later. I would love to hear what you guys come up with and any thoughts you may have. So the number again, 202-999-3991. But that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing Stories.